Hey guys, welcome back to the Killer Chronicles podcast. I'm super pumped to be back with you today. I took a brief two-week hiatus just because my seasonal depression was really hitting. Um, but the sun has been shining. I'm out of it. We're in the clear for now. Also, my tax refund got approved, so that was a sleigh. Um, anyway, I'm super happy to be back. And I'm really excited that you're listening with me today. Um, in this case, had a lot of information, and I'm going to try my best to piece it together in a way that makes sense. Um, I was honestly overwhelmed researching this, um, so bear with me. And also, there are a lot of names and towns in this episode that I'm probably not going to pronounce the right way, so also you're going to have to bear with that. Um, but without further ado, let's get into today's episode. It is the murder of Nicole Brown Simpson and Ronald Goldman in the 11-month trial of O.J. Simpson that ultimately ended in his acquittal. Let's talk about Nicole for a second. So, Nicole was born as Nicole Brown on May 19, 1959 in Frankfurt, Germany, to her parents Judith Ann Brown and Louis Hezekiah Brown Jr. Nicole's mother was German and her father was American. She was the second of four daughters within her parents' marriage, and she also had two half-sisters and one half-brother from her her father's previous marriage. Nicole's parents met in Germany when her father was stationed there as a correspondent for the American Armed Forces publication, Stars and Stripes, which was a newspaper that launched in 1942 and is currently still active that aimed to provide independent news and information to the military community. After moving from Germany to the United States, she was enrolled at Rancho Alamitos High School in Garden Grove, California, and she eventually enrolled at Dana Hills High School in Dana Point, California, and that's where she finished out her high school career until her graduation in 1977. Nicole was only a toddler when her life shifted from Germany to the U.S., and as she grew older, it became apparent that California was a good fit for her. She always had gravitated towards the beach, and as a young teen, she was actually named the homecoming princess at Dana Hills High School. There isn't much more that I could find about her early life, but after graduating high school, she worked at a clothing boutique for two weeks before she got a waitressing job at the Daisy, which was a nightclub in Beverly Hills, and it was while working at the Daisy that she met her future husband, O.J. Simpson. She enrolled herself at Saddleback College in Mission Veo, California, but she only attended there for a few months before she dropped out to move in with OJ because he required that she be with him at all times, which was the first red flag in the beginning of their rocky relationship. Um, First thing is when they met and began dating in 1977, Nicole was only 18 and OJ was on the brink of turning 30. And also he was still married to his first wife, Marguerite, who he already had two children with and she was pregnant with their third. And Marguerite and OJ weren't officially divorced until March of 1979, even though him and Nicole had been dating for two years already, almost two years. Um, Nicole and OJ ended up getting married nearly six years after they first met on February 2nd, 1985. The marriage would go on to last for seven years and result in two children. During their marriage, OJ physically abused Nicole and according to a police report of an incident that occurred on New Year's Day in 1989, O.J. was heard screaming, I don't want that woman, which he was referring to Brown, sleeping in my bed anymore. I got two women, and I don't want that woman in my bed anymore. 
Throughout the marriage, the police were called several times by Nicole herself to report the abuse. He was arrested once in 1989, and he pleaded no contest to spousal abuse. Nicole was encouraged to drop the charges after talking with her parents, and eventually she did drop the charges, and here's why. OJ encouraged Nicole's father, Lewis, um, to talk her into dropping the charges by providing Nicole's father with the opportunity to invest in a lucrative Hertz car rental facility at the Ritz-Carlton in Monarch Bay, California, which would have been extremely financially beneficial for the Brown family. Uh, Nicole finally had enough when she filed for divorce on February 25th, 1992. She cited irreconcilable differences. I know, I totally butchered that. Irreconcilable differences. I can't speak today, apparently. Which essentially means that the couple could not get along well enough to keep the marriage afloat. Um, After Nicole filed for divorce, OJ informed her of an extramarital affair that had been going on for over a year with a woman named Tawny Katane. The affair ended when Katane got married to David Coverdale in 1989. And directly following the divorce, Nicole and OJ had a volatile relationship, but they eventually found a way to reconcile. On October 25th, 1993, Nicole called the cops trying, or she called the police crying and claimed that OJ was going to beat the shit out of me. When the police arrived at the residence, Nicole was being recorded secretly and was heard saying, he gets very, he gets a very animalistic look in him. All his veins pop out. His eyes are black and just black. I mean, cold, like an animal. I mean, very, very weird. And when I see it, it just scares me. Nicole was murdered on June 12th, 1994 with her friend, Ron Goldman. So now that we've heard a little bit about Nicole and her rocky marriage with OJ, let's get into Ronald Goldman. Uh, Ronald Lyle Goldman was born on July 2nd, 1968. He grew up in the community of Buffalo Grove, Illinois, near Chicago. His parents were Fred Goldman and Sharon Rufo, and they ended up divorcing in 1974 when Ron was six. For a brief time after the divorce, Ron lived with his mother, but ultimately custody was given to his father, and that is who ended up raising him for the remainder of his life, along with his younger sister. Ron was raised Jewish and attended high school at Adlai E. Stevenson High School in Lincolnshire, Illinois. He spent one semester at Illinois State University where he planned to major in psychology. He also had an interest in becoming a pledge at the Sigma Nu fraternity. When his family relocated to Southern California, Ron discontinued his studies to follow his family there. Um, But prior to moving to California, Ron worked as a camp counselor and had experience volunteering with children suffering from cerebral palsy. After the move to California, Ron took a few classes at Pierce College He also learned to surf, and he enjoyed playing beach volleyball, rollerblading, and nightclubbing. He did live independently away from his family, and he got a job as an employment headhunter and a tennis instructor when he got to California. He also had a string of waiter jobs. He occasionally worked as a model for Barry Zeldis. Um, And to add to his resume, he received his emergency medical technician's license shortly before his death. So he was kind of all over the place. He had a lot of different odd-end jobs. Uh, But ultimately, Ron had a dream of opening his own bar slash restaurant in the Brentwood area of California. He shared with his friends that it would not be known by name, but rather a symbol called the Ankh, which was an Egyptian religious symbol 
of life that Ron had tattooed on his shoulder. Ron met Nicole six weeks prior to the date that they were murdered when he borrowed her Ferrari. The pair grew increasingly friendly after their first encounter, and they often met for coffee and dinner. The relationship was platonic, according to police records and statements made by close friends of Ron and Nicole, despite the rumors that they may have been dating. Ron had actually just gotten out of a two-year-long relationship with Jackie Bell only about a month before he met Nicole. Um, So that's a little bit about Ron and Nicole, uh, a brief description of how they met. So now we're going to get into the unfortunate murder um, of Nicole and Ron. So at the time of Nicole's death, she was living at 875 South Bundy Drive in Brentwood, California, with her two children that she shared with OJ. They had a daughter named Sydney and a son named Justin. And on the night of the murder, Ron was working a server shift at Mezzaluna Trattoria, which was a local restaurant in Brentwood. Nicole and her mother had dined there earlier that evening. And Nicole called the restaurant to report that her mother had left her reading glasses on the table. Ron was not their server when they dined, but after the glasses turned up, he agreed to drop them off to Nicole at her home after his shift. Ron punched out of work at 9.33 p.m. and stayed another 15 minutes to have bottled water at the bar and chit-chat with his co-workers. Before returning the glasses to Nicole, he also stopped at his own apartment in Brentwood that was located at 11663 Gorham Avenue. He had plans to go out with Mezzaluna's bartender, Stuart Tanner, later that evening, so he most likely went home to get ready before um, walking to Nicole's condo to drop off her mother's glasses. And unfortunately, Nicole and Ron were stabbed to death on the walkway leading up to Nicole's condo on June 12, 1994. Their bodies were discovered shortly after midnight on June 13th. Since they were both found outside of the condo, police came to believe that Ron had arrived either during the attack or shortly after the attack when the killer would have still been nearby. Ron's family believes that he attempted to save Nicole from her attacker, and that is why he was killed as well. Neighbors nearby heard a man shouting that night around the time that the murders were occurring, and Ron's family believes that it was him shouting at the attacker or yelling for help. Ron was killed 20 days before his 26th birthday. Sorry, I have a little throat thing going on. Um, His autopsy revealed that he sustained several stab wounds to the chest and abdomen as well as to the neck. The fatal wounds were the ones sustained to the neck where the left jugular vein was cut and as well as a stab wound to the chest and abdomen causing an intrathoracic and intra-abdominal hemorrhage. There was also a note of cuts on both his right and left hands, which are compatible with defensive wounds, which would confirm the theory that he was attempting to fight off Nicole's attacker. Nicole's autopsy revealed that she had been stabbed seven times in the neck and scalp and sustained a 5.5 inch long gash across her throat, which severed both her left and right carotid arteries and breached her right and left jugular veins. The laceration to her throat penetrated almost an inch into her vertebrae, nearly decapitating her. Nicole also had defensive wounds on her hands. No one was ever convicted of the murders, but there was an 11-month trial that ended in a very controversial acquittal, and that was none other than the acquittal of O.J. Simpson. Now, before we get into the trial and, like, O.J. and his arrest and all that, um, I just want to talk about, I found this website online where you can look up pretty much like 
any kind of crime scene photos from any crime or like autopsy photos. Like I found Travis Alexander's autopsy photos, which was the guy from um, that Jody Arias murdered. They're disgustingly horrifying. Um, if you have a weak stomach, I don't recommend, but to me it's fascinating. Um, and then I was also able to find the crime. I couldn't find autopsy photos for Nicole and Ron, but I did find crime scene photos, um, which did include, um, the slash to Nicole's neck. Like there was a, there was a picture of like her face and you could see the gash on her neck and it's just, it really, I don't know. I feel like looking at those pictures just kind of really gives you a sense of how angry the person must have been when they committed these crimes. Like whoever it was must have been so, so angry because to almost decapitate someone is just like, first of all, to stab them is a personal kill. Like shooting someone is a way of like kind of distancing yourself because it's not like a direct thing. The gun is doing the shooting. You know what I mean? Like you're pulling the trigger, but it's the bullet that's killing. And, but stabbing someone, it's like you are the one committing that act. You're the one doing the stabbing. And it's, I don't know, does that make any sense the way I described it? I feel like it didn't. Um, but like stabbing is just like a very personal kill. And the amount of times that somebody gets stabbed and then also to have their throat slashed to the point of nearly being decapitated, that's a lot of anger. Um, and it's just scary, scary and sad to think about. Um, but by talking about this case and the trial and the injustice that was served, we are keeping Ron and Nicole's memory alive. We are continuing to fight for justice for them because they got it in a sense, and you'll see what I mean towards the end. Their families got a sense of justice, but the victims did not. Um, but anyway, we'll talk about that at the end. But let's get into O.J. Simpson. So O.J. Simpson was born as Orenthal James Simpson on July 9th, 1947, to his parents Jimmy Lee Simpson and Eunice Simpson. His mother was a hospital administrator and his father was an employee of the Federal Reserve Bank and a one-time custodian. He was also actually a well-known drag queen in the San Francisco Bay Area. Later on in his life, his father announced that he was gay and he would end up dying of AIDS in 1986. OJ was born and raised in San Francisco, California, and OJ's maternal grandparents were from Louisiana, and his aunt was the one who gave him his birth name, Orenthal, which was the name of a French actor that she liked. His parents and family only called him OJ for his entire life, and he had no idea that his actual name was Orenthal until the third grade when his teacher read it out loud. OJ has one brother named Melvin and one living sister named Shirley, and one sister who passed away, and her name was Carmelita. As a child, OJ developed rickets, which is a condition that results in weak or soft bones in children, and it's either caused by dietary deficiency or genetic causes. Symptoms of rickets can include bowed legs, stunted growth, bone pain, and trouble sleeping. He wore braces on his legs until the age of five, and this is what gave him his bow-legged stance. 
OJ's parents ended up separating in 1952, and Simpson was then raised by his mother. Once his parents were divorced and his mother had to support her children on her own, they ended up moving into the housing projects of the Portrero Hill neighborhood. He was briefly incarcerated at the San Francisco Youth Guidance Center in his early teenage years for his involvement with a street gang called the Persian Warriors. OJ met his first wife, Marguerite, when they were children, and they grew up together. She described OJ as a really, really an awful person then. Uh, So she was describing him when he was like in his teenage years and he was going through his like Persian warriors phase when he was with the gang and stuff that he was really an awful person. He was arrested a total of three times throughout his teen years. And after his third arrest, he had the chance to meet the MLB star Willie Mays. During this meeting, Mays saw potential in OJ and he encouraged him to turn his life around and avoid any further trouble. And he was actually able to help OJ reform. OJ ended up playing for the school football team at his high school, Galileo High School. He graduated there in 1965, but during his time playing football there, he was recognized as an all-city football player, but his mediocre grades prevented him from attracting the interest of college recruiters. After a childhood friend's injury in the Vietnam War, OJ was influenced to stay out of the military, so he enrolled himself at the City College of San Francisco in 1965. He played football as a running back and a defensive back, and he was named the Junior College All-American team as running back. While OJ played football for City College, they won the Prune Bowl against Long Beach State. And after this win, OJ was sought. Um, he was sought after. He was sought after by several colleges as a potential transfer student for football. I'm sorry, guys. I can't speak today. Apparently, don't know if it's because I've had too much coffee and I'm jittery. Or I'm just out of practice with recording these episodes, but sorry if my words are a little jumbly. Um, OJ had always had dreams of attending USC, the University of Southern California, and he chose to attend there over an offer from the University of Utah. He played as a running back in 1967 and 1968 for USC, and he led the nation in rushing yards for both years. In 67, he had 1,543 yards and 13 touchdowns, and in 1968, he had 1,880 yards and 23 touchdowns. His 1968 season was his senior year, and he actually earned himself the Heisman Trophy that year, the Maxwell Award, and the Walter Camp Award, which are all awards that recognized him as the best player in the league. OJ did end up playing in the NFL for the Buffalo Bills and the 49ers. Um, But let's jump outside of his professional career because I could go on all day to list stats and stuff, but that's not what we're about right now. Um, So we're going to jump outside of that. Um, At the age of 19, OJ married his childhood sweetheart, Marguerite Whitley. Together, they had three children, Arnell, Jason, and Aaron. Unfortunately, at the age of two, Aaron drowned in the family's swimming pool in 1979, which was the summer after him and Marguerite got divorced. Um, OJ met Nicole Brown in 1977 while she was waitressing at the Daisy and began dating her in 1977 while still married to Marguerite, as I discussed with you before. His divorce was not finalized until 1979. Nicole and OJ's marriage lasted for the seven years and resulted in two more children for OJ. The marriage was rocky and there were several reports of spousal abuse at the hands of OJ. It was two years after the divorce that Nicole and Ron Goldman were murdered. 
And due to the nature of their marriage, um, due to the nature of the marriage of Nicole and OJ, and several police reports that were filed against OJ by Nicole, both during and after their marriage, this led police to consider OJ as a person of interest almost immediately. It only took a few days of gathering evidence for police to have enough information to get an arrest warrant for OJ. He agreed with his lawyers that he would turn himself in around noon um, to the Park Parker Center Police Headquarters on the morning of June 17th, which was five days after the murders, but he did not follow through with this plan. And this resulted in a low-speed pursuit of a 1993 Ford Bronco SUV in which OJ was the passenger. Al Cowlings was the owner of the Bronco and was the driver during the pursuit. OJ met Cowlings during his NFL career, and they formed a lifelong friendship. According to Cowlings, OJ was armed in the backseat of the Bronco with a pistol, which he was holding to his head, threatening to shoot himself if he wasn't taken back to his Brentwood estate, which is eventually where the pursuit ended because um, Al Cowlings ended up just driving the Bronco back to the estate. Due to this information, California Highway Patrol pursued the vehicle with extreme caution. During the pursuit, the 1994 NBA Finals were streaming on television, but coverage of the finals was interrupted to broadcast the pursuit live. There were 95 million people watching the broadcast. This event was later described as the most famous ride on American shores since Paul Revere's. And, um... I didn't say this in the beginning, but I really only knew like two really infamous things about this case before I started researching, which is kind of why I wanted to do it because I knew nothing about it. And the pursuit of OJ in the Bronco was one of the things that I knew about um, that made this case super famous. And then the second one was the leather gloves. But we'll talk about that once we get into the trial. Um, so now let's talk about the events that led up to OJ's arrest. So after the victims were identified as Nicole Brown and Ronald Goldman, detectives Tom Lange, Philip ben Philip Venatter, Ron Phillips, and Mark Furman were instructed to inform OJ of his ex-wife's murder. As he was in Chicago at the time, he was not at his Brentwood estate. Detectives were not aware of this, so they sat outside of his estate and buzzed the intercom repeatedly for over 30 minutes. And they began to drive around the outside of the estate to look for any kind of activity within the home or around the property. And while they were doing that, they noted that the Bronco um, that OJ owned was parked at an awkward angle with the back end more out than the front. Um, and I do just want to say that it's important to note here that the Bronco, the white Bronco that was involved in the pursuit was belonged to Al Cowlings. And this Bronco belongs to OJ. They both had the exact same make and model Bronco, same color, everything. Al Cowlings got oh, the same car as OJ because, I don't know, because they were besties, I guess. Um, so these are two different Broncos that we're talking about. But anyway, OJ's Bronco was parked at a weird angle. And the police noticed when they were driving around that there was blood on the door of the Bronco. This caused them to fear that someone might have been harmed inside the home because it was coupled with the fact that nobody was answering the intercom. Um, Furman ended up scaling one of the walls around the outside, like around the gate of the estate, and he was able to unlock the gate from the inside to allow the other three detectives in with him. 
The detectives recognized that they entered without a search warrant, which is completely illegal. But they argued that it was due to specific circumstances. Like, they literally thought that somebody inside was hurt. And they had reason to believe so. Um, So this is when police discovered the bloody glove that made a pair with the glove found at Nicole's condo. This was enough to issue the arrest warrant for OJ. One of the detectives, Ron Phillips, was the one who called OJ to inform him of Nicole's murder once they found out that he was in Chicago and they wouldn't be able to tell him in person. Um, And Phillips later testified at the trial that when he called OJ to inform him, OJ sounded upset, but he was oddly unconcerned about the state of his own children, who were both asleep inside the residence when the murders took place. They were both at Nicole's condo inside sleeping when the murders took place. But OJ never bothered to ask if his children were okay, but instead he only asked if they had seen the murder occur or the body of Nicole. When OJ arrived back in Los Angeles after his return from Chicago on June 13th, um, the police brought him in for questioning. Detective Lange questioned OJ about a cut that he had on his left fingers, which was consistent with the type of injury that the killer would have sustained during the killings. OJ claimed that he cut his finger on something in Chicago, but Lange then confronted OJ with the information that blood was found inside of his Bronco, and OJ then changed his story to say that he did cut his finger the previous day on June 12th, but he did not remember how. That's sus, okay? First, he's saying, I cut my finger in Chicago. But then when he's confronted with evidence that refutes that, he's like, oh, yeah, actually, I was lying. I cut it on June 12th, but I don't remember how I cut it. But you remember how you cut your finger the first time. You remembered the lie, but you can't remember the truth. That's probably because the truth is that you cut it while you were murdering your ex-wife. Okay. Anyway. All right. So I already spoiled how I feel about this. I think he did it. But anyway, let's get on. He ended up voluntarily um, giving some of his own blood to the police for comparison to blood that they found at the crime scene. So the police had no other reason to hold him at this time, so they released him. And the next day, OJ hired his lawyer, Robert Shapiro, who began assembling his team, um, which is referred to as the Dream Team. Within a few days, the DA received all of the DNA results, which did indicate a match to OJ, but the DA's office waited to file the charges until all results had come back. So on the night of June 16th, four days after the murders, and into the morning of June 17th, OJ stayed at Robert Kardashian's house. Kardashian was a personal friend of OJ, and he did also end up becoming a part of his legal team. They most likely spent the night preparing for the DNA results and discussing legal strategy. Um, As the morning of June 17th came around, detectives recommended that OJ be charged with two counts of first-degree murder based on the DNA results that had come in. The LAPD notified OJ's lawyers around 8.30 a.m. that morning that OJ would need to turn himself in that day. At 9.30 a.m. an hour later, Robert Shapiro went to the Kardashians' home to inform OJ that he would need to turn himself in by 11 a.m. The murder charges were being filed at 10 a.m., so he needed to turn himself in within an hour of the charges being filed. OJ agreed to turn himself in, and because of his cooperation, the police agreed to delay his surrender until noon so that he could be seen by a mental health specialist. So I want to talk about this, too. 
From the moment that all eyes were on OJ for the crime, he began receiving medical treatment for depression and his lawyers made a huge fuss about his mental health. OJ was apparently showing signs of suicidal depression. He updated his will, called his mother and children, and wrote three sealed letters, one to his children, one to his mother, and one to the public. When OJ didn't arrive at the police station, the police called Shapiro, his lawyer, and informed him that OJ would be arrested at the Kardashians' home if he wasn't going to come in willingly. And an hour later, when the police arrived to arrest OJ at the Kardashians' residence, he was not there. He had disappeared with Al Cowlings. The three letters were conveniently left behind at the Kardashian home. The LAPD then declared OJ a fugitive and issued a an arrest warrant for Cowlings. At 1.50 p.m., an APB was issued for OJ and Cowlings. Around 5 p.m. that evening, Robert Kardashian and um, a future member of his defense team read the letter that OJ wrote to the public out loud on a live broadcast. I think it was on, like, Channel 4, like, News Channel 4. Um, I... I personally believe that the entire depression slash being suicidal storyline was a falsehood created by OJ's lawyers to gain him sympathy with the public as well as to make him appear as a grieving ex-husband. Because, like, remember that on the night of June 16th, like, they were all preparing for the DNA results to come in. And OJ knew he was in deep shit. Like, because you know you did it. Um, They were all preparing for that to come in. OJ probably, they all sat down as a legal team at Robert Kardashian's house, stayed up all night discussing legal strategy, what they were going to do, had him change his, like, maybe this didn't all occur on that night because I feel like contacting the person to change your will, you can't just do that at like 10 o'clock at night. So I feel like maybe this was a strategy that had been, they'd been discussing for days before, like probably pretty much ever since OJ um, probably pretty much ever since OJ contacted Shapiro to be his lawyer. But basically what I think they had him do was I think they had him play the grieving ex-husband and they had him change his will on purpose. Um, they had him do all these things that would point to him being suicidal, like the write these suicide notes to his children, his mother and the public. Um, another thing, why are you writing a suicide note to the public? Aren't suicide notes usually reserved for family and people that you know closely, like close acquaintances? So that also was weird to me that you'd write a suicide note to the public. I'm like, okay. Um, so like the suicide notes, the changing of the will, um, all that stuff, I think that was planned. Um, and probably the night of June 16th, he probably spent that night um, at Kardashian's house so that he could be there when he was informed that he would be arrested. Cause I think they had a feeling it was coming within the next few days. Um, and I think they wanted him to be strategically at someone else's house, like at someone else's house so that he could be informed when the police were coming for him so that they could arrange that whole Bronco situation. Like, I think that was planned as well. I think that they that was like the big reveal of him being suicidal and depressed, him holding a pistol to his head in the back of a Bronco that was being chased by police. Like I think that was all a publicity stunt, all a stunt to get 
like sympathy from the public um because he knew he was a fugitive but get this he made a phone call to 911 while he was in the bronco on the run he was he was a fugitive and he made a phone call to 911 and allowed them to stay on the line with him long enough to trace his location and then what do you know no more than 30 minutes later he and Cowlings were found driving in Cowlings Bronco and the pursuit began so basically OJ phoned in his own location he gave his own location to police if you're a fugitive and you don't want to get caught and you don't and you're trying to avoid a publicity stunt and all this other shit why are you calling in pretty much your own location you're giving yourself away that's why i think it was planned uh, i think they probably were like oh well since he's cooperating can we get an extra hour um can we get till noon you know so he could be seen by his his therapist first or whatever and they're like oh the police are like oh okay you know but have him here by noon whatever and then during that extra hour they were able to arrange him to go with cowlings he brought the pistol with him uh cowlings and him had time to drive out um because they were a little ways away from um his residence like they were they were i don't know exactly how far i honestly forgot to look it up um how far the kardashians home was from where the chase began but knowing california and traffic it probably took them at least an hour to get there so that maybe half an hour so that extra buffer time gave them time to get where they needed to start um and then so yeah i think the whole thing was planned uh, yeah so i think he they wanted him at someone else's house so that the police couldn't just show up to his residence unannounced um yeah i think that whole stunt was staged but anyway well, let's talk about the trial um so the pursuit of oj and the bronco the arrest and the trial were all among the most widely publicized events in american history and they still hold that title today oj's defense team known as the dream team as i said before consisted of johnny cochran robert kardashian robert shapiro and f lee bailey marcia clark was the lead prosecutor for the state of california the trial was considered the trial of the century beginning on January 24th, 1995, with the opening statements and ending on October 3rd, 1995. So I think like total, like with all of the preliminary hearings and stuff, it was like 11 months, but it really only the trial itself, like beginning with opening statements began at the end of January. So it was really more of like a nine month, like everybody in the courtroom trial type thing. Um, but OJ was formally charged for the murders on June 17th, 1994. Um, detectives on the case had questioned OJ and had enough suspicions to gather a search warrant for his property. Um, and this was after they found the bloodstained glove on the property. Um, like after they found that that was enough for them to get a search warrant to, to search the rest of his property. Um, the prosecution believed they had a strong case against OJ based on the significant amount of forensic evidence. This forensic evidence should have been the nail in OJ's coffin, and it was DNA evidence that was sent to three separate labs using different testing approaches, and it found that the, that the blood at the crime scene matched OJ's blood. To get specific, you ready for this? The lab results showed that the chances of the blood sample not being OJ's blood 
was 1 in 9.7 billion. So the chances of it not being OJ's blood was 1 in 9.7 billion. That was his blood, bitch. You can't refute that. However, unfortunately at this time in American history, the public was very unfamiliar and uneducated with the significance of DNA testing and its precision and accuracy, and OJ's defense team used this to their advantage. They were able to convince the jury that the DNA evidence was contaminated and that the process that was used to collect the evidence was compromised. They argued that the DNA of the real killer was lost due to the mishandling of the collection of evidence. The prosecution was able to debunk the theory of mishandling when all three labs who tested the DNA found no discrepancies in the sample, which is something that they would have found if there was an error in collection. But ultimately, the prosecution struggled to get the jury to understand the importance of this DNA evidence against OJ. The judge, Lance Itto, also made some very controversial decisions in the courtroom regarding the DNA portion of the trial that ultimately resulted in the acquittal, in my opinion. Firstly, he allowed the defense team to argue that DNA evidence was planted at the scene, despite the fact that the defense couldn't provide a single shred of evidence of such an event. He also allowed Dr. John Gerds to testify about contamination in prior LAPD cases, which is a legal strategy called cherry-picking. And cherry-picking is when you point to an individual case that seems to confirm a particular position, when in reality there are a significantly, there are significantly more cases that contain data that would contradict that position. So in this case, Gerds pointed to the rare cases within the LAPD that have seen DNA corruption, while ignoring the hundreds of thousands of other cases with the LAPD that were reliable. Um, so one of the criminalists who, col- who was collecting evidence at the scenes, Andrea Mazzola, she did admit to a few mistakes when collecting the evidence at the crime scene and inside of OJ's Ford Bronco. She stated that she occasionally would not change gloves when picking up different pieces of evidence, and she stated that she did not, that she did collect blood from three different spots using only one swatch. The blood evidence was also kept unrefrigerated for up to seven hours after the collection, which can alter the accuracy of the DNA. But despite those errors, DNA experts who testified at the trial did not seem to think that those specific errors were harmful enough to affect the evidence. So now let's talk about the infamous gloves. This is the other part of the case that I knew about um, before I started researching. So there was one bloody leather glove found behind OJ's home that contained blood from OJ, Nicole, and Ron. The other matching leather glove was found outside of Nicole's condo. So this was yet another piece of evidence that should have nailed OJ's coffin shut, but the defense was able to get the pair of gloves into the courtroom for OJ to try on in front of the jury. And they were a tad bit too small for OJ's hands. However, Leather is a very sensitive material, especially when we're talking about a clothing accessory. The prosecution reminded the jury that the gloves probably shrunk since the murders, given the fact that they were worn during the murders and got bloody, so as the blood dried, it would affect the size of the gloves. Another point that I have, it's not scientific at all, it's just a girly fact. Any man or woman out there who has owned leather clothing, especially pants knows that if you don't maneuver your body just right and adjust yourself like a million times, that thing is just not fitting on you. It's not. 
so OJ could have easily like flexed his hands in just the right way to make the gloves appear not to fit. When in all reality, all he need- needed to do was wiggle his fingers a little bit more to get the gloves all the way on. It would have been very easy for him to fake them not fitting, or maybe he just didn't pull them down all the way. Like, there's no way for you to know for sure. Like, he was the one putting the gloves on himself. If someone else tried to put the gloves on for him and, like, force them to go on and fit the right way, I bet they would have fit perfectly. Um, But even if they were too small, like we talked about, the blood drying on the gloves is going to make the leather shrink. Um, So a criminalist named Renee Montgomery, who worked for the California Department of Justice Crime Lab, used the results of the DNA testing and the evidence collected at Nicole's condo inside of the Bronco and at OJ's home to reconstruct how she believed the murders happened. So OJ's blood was found in droplets around the bloody footprints surrounding the bodies, which in her experience placed him directly at the crime scene during the crime. She continued to say that he fled through the back gate due to his blood being found on the gate behind Nicole's condo. He then drove away in his Bronco, which is where he left evidence of the victim's blood on the outside of the car door, as well as inside on the console. He then entered his home through the backyard, as there was a trail of bloodstains containing his blood, as well as Nicole and Ron's leading behind his home. And then, of course, the second glove was found behind his home as well. There was also a sock inside of OJ's bedroom that contained Nicole's blood on it. He most likely changed his clothes and left the bloody sock. And this is this is where we get into another important piece of his story that night. He um, had a flight booked to Chicago. Um, and the limousine driver that was scheduled to pick him up had a very interesting story. So OJ was a sp- a spokesperson for the Hertz Rental Car Corporation, and he was scheduled to head to Chicago to play golf at a convention with all the representatives of the corporation. His flight was leaving at 11.45 p.m. on the night of June 12th, but at around 10.25 p.m., the limousine arrived at his estate to pick him up. The driver of the limousine drove around the property to make sure he could navigate the area properly and to see which entrance would have the best access for the limousine. At 10.40 p.m., so 15 minutes after kind of driving around the outside of the estate, the driver buzzed the intercom and got no response. He noted that as he waited, the house was dark with no lights on, appearing as though nobody was home. He made several phone calls to his boss in an attempt to get OJ's number. Um, At some point later on, he saw a dark figure, roughly the same size as OJ, enter the house through the front door but he didn't see where the figure came from. He just saw it once it reached the front door. The lights came on as this figure entered the home, which pointed to the fact that nobody was home before that. Um, A man named Cato Kalin was staying in OJ's guest house during this time. And within minutes of the limousine driver reporting a figure entering the house, something crashed into the wall of um, Kalin's guest house. He left the guest house in an attempt to investigate but he did not walk towards where the loud crashing sound came from. Instead, he walked towards the front of the house where he found the limousine parked outside. Kaylin let the limousine in, and within a few minutes, OJ came outside to meet the limousine. He claimed that he overslept, and that's why he was late and didn't answer the buzzer. The limousine driver, as well as Kaylin, both reported that OJ seemed agitated that night. 
the driver testified that OJ's behavior inside of the limousine on the way to the airport was also strange. He was apparently complaining of sweating and that it was too hot, despite it not being a very warm June night. The driver also noted that OJ had four luggage bags, and one of them was a knapsack that OJ would not let him touch. The porter at the airport responsible for OJ's luggage testified that OJ... Oh my god, I'm so sorry. That OJ only checked in three bags that night, and that the missing luggage was, in fact, the same knapsack that the limousine driver was prohibited from touching. There was an eyewitness at the airport who chose not to testify at the trial, which is really unfortunate, but he did tell police that he saw OJ discarding items from a bag, the knapsack, into a trash can. And um, detectives believe that this is most likely where the murder weapon, shoes, and clothes that OJ was wearing that night were disposed of. Of course, everything except the one sock that he forgot in his bedroom and the gloves. So he probably lost one of the gloves at the crime scene. Um, and then dropped the other one when he was rushing back home because he knew he was going to be late for his flight. He went into his bedroom, undressed himself, packed up all the clothing that he had on during the murders because they were probably blood-soaked into his knapsack. And he was probably rushing to do that because he was already late. And he just killed two people, so he's frantic. And he probably left a sock without even realizing. Um, So, I mean, there was so much DNA evidence. And it's really unfortunate that the jury didn't understand the significance of that evidence and that the prosecutors couldn't help them understand it. Like, that's just a really unfortunate piece to this trial. And also the judge. The judge's decisions on what he allowed to happen in the courtroom really altered the course of this trial. Um, And I will talk about that in just a second. Um, Because there is another part of this story I want to talk about, which is the aftermath after the trial and the there's a civil trial that happened. So we'll get into that in a second. But so ultimately, OJ ended up being acquitted of these crimes. So nobody was ever arrested or convicted for the murders of Nicole Brown and Ron Goldman, um, even though there was clear cut evidence that it was OJ. And unfortunately, he got away with it. So, like I said before, despite the overwhelming evidence that was presented by the prosecutors, the jury ultimately came back with two non-guilty verdicts and OJ was acquitted. So in the aftermath of the trial, there was a lot of blame and judgment placed on the jurors, and here's why. So the jury was observed during the trial by several different people in the courtroom, like the reporters, the families, and the general public that was allowed in to observe the trial. And A lot of people that were in the courtroom actually made note that during the DNA portion of the trial, the jury was often not engaged and not paying attention to the evidence. Now, I get it to a certain degree because DNA evidence was not something widely understood at this time. And so I understand that maybe you're having a hard time engaging with the evidence when you don't understand the evidence. But it is a very, like, you are a jury responsible for deciding whether this man, whether this man deserves to go to prison because he took two lives. You are in charge of justice. You are the one responsible for serving justice to those who need to be served. 
slay, period. Okay? And if you are not paying attention to key evidence in the trial, that's your fault. And so if they if it is true, if the reports are true that they were not paying attention during most of the DNA testimony, that's on them. And judgment should be placed on the jurors if that's the case. But obviously I wasn't even born. I don't know. Wasn't there. But what we can say for sure is that 11 out of the 12 jurors didn't have any higher education. And one of those 11 didn't even have their high school diploma. Now, I am not saying that people that don't have higher education are stupid. I am just saying that when you go through higher education, you continue your education You have different conversations with different people. You have different experiences with different people. And you just gain a broader knowledge of the world in general, whether it relates to your major or not. You, your education is continuing in a formal setting. You learn more things about the world in a broad sense through so many different avenues So no, I'm not saying that people who don't have higher education are stupid. I'm just saying that the college experience, having a higher education, there's a different level of knowledge there. But at the same time, um, it was a relatively new concept in the early 90s, like I've been saying this entire time, to rely on DNA evidence. A lot of people had no idea what that was and why it was important and the accuracy of DNA testing. So it was a relatively new concept for everybody, even people who had received higher education. They probably didn't completely understand the significance of DNA testing either. So it that's not anybody's fault. Okay. Whether you had an education or not, there was probably 90% chance that you're not gonna understand it to the extent that you needed to understand it for this trial. And um So this wasn't the jury's fault at all that they were uneducated in DNA evidence because everybody was uneducated in DNA evidence. So yes, they, like I said before, they are liable for not paying attention to the trial during a critical moment, but the defense also specifically seated jurors who were unfamiliar with DNA evidence. From what I understand about jury selecting is I've never, I've never been called for jury duty, but my dad has. And based on what he told me, like you go through these pre-screening questions where they ask you certain things they want to know about you to figure out if you'd be a good fit for the trial, whether you'd benefit them or you'd benefit the prosecution. So there's, you know, and obviously in the end, the prosecution and the defense team need to agree on the jurors. I, I believe both sides have to agree and both sides get to pick certain amounts of jurors. I don't know, but they all have to agree on the jury selection. But the um, defense did specifically target jurors who were unfamiliar with DNA evidence, which was probably a lot of them. There was probably not, it probably wasn't too hard to find somebody who was unfamiliar. So that part of it was probably hard for the prosecution to skirt around. And I know the prosecution tried their best during the trial to explain DNA evidence, but it's 
it was a new concept. And I'm not really sure that they were listening. Um, so I don't know. But this did make it very easy for OJ's team to confuse the jury when they were reviewing the DNA evidence in court. And there was also a suggestion of racial bias in the courtroom due to the fact that eight out of the 12 jurors were African-American, and obviously so was OJ. Now, whether or not the jury knew about their own bias, which is unlikely, it happens. Racial bias in criminal trials has reigned in this country for over a century, and it began all the way back in the Jim Crow era in the South in the late 1800s. So it is plausible to say that there could have been racial bias from the jury that worked in OJ's favor. Now, don't cancel me for saying racial bias. Okay, racial bias goes both ways. It can happen when there's a majority African-American jury. It can happen when there's a majority white jury. doesn't matter. It goes both ways. Okay, so don't cancel me. But I'm just giving information that I have read and learned about from the people who were actually in the courtroom. So I'm just relaying messages to you, okay? Um, so that was really the aftermath of the trial. There was a lot of books written about the trial by the prosecutors, by um, some of the people who were responsible for like testifying. There was a lot of books written about the trial. And that's where I'm getting a lot of the information from, like that I just talked about, like a lot of the information about what happened in the aftermath of the trial. But, and this is the part I was talking about in the beginning when I said that the victims' families might have gotten justice, but the victims themselves did not because their killer was never convicted and he was right in front of them the whole time and he was never convicted. But the families, in a way, got justice and this is why. So in 1996, a year after um, OJ was acquitted, Fred Goldman and Sharon Rufo, which were Ron's parents, and Lou Brown, Nicole's father, worked to worked together to file a civil suit against OJ for wrongful death. The judge who oversaw the civil trial, he- Hiroshi Fujisaki, sorry if I butchered that, buddy, did not allow the trial to be televised, and he prohibited the defense from alleging racism by the LAPD and from condemning the crime lab. So basically this new judge threw out and did not allow for any of the defense's strategies from the first trial. You know, if you remember, they tried to claim all these things like that evidence was planted and that the LAPD was racist and that's why they planted evidence and all this other jazz, but they had not a single shred of evidence to back those claims up. And the judge, Lance Itto, still allowed those claims to be made in court and allowed those claims to affect the decision of the jury. Okay? So don't even get me started on that judge. I could trash talk him forever. All right? So basically, this new judge had his head out of his ass, and all of the defense's strategies from the first trial weren't allowed during the civil trial. And that basically went to show during the civil trial that OJ's defense team had no defense. And the only reason that OJ was acquitted was due to the policies allowed in the courtroom by the first judge, Lance Itto, who allowed all those theories into the courtroom without requiring any evidence to back them up. So when you really look at the first trial, the jury and the jury selection is not to blame. It's Lance Itto. 
He allowed claims that could not be backed up without any evidence to guide the trial. He allowed the defense to plant seeds into the jury's heads, and the way he handled the trial was completely unprofessional. Now, luckily, Lance Itto is retired as of 2015, so he can no longer fuck up anyone else's justice ever again. Anyway, back to the civil trial before I lose my marbles. OJ took a polygraph and failed epically, and he also took the stand on his own behalf and was caught lying several times. The jury for the civil trial found OJ liable for the murders, and OJ had to pay a total of $33.5 million in compet- oh my gosh, I can't even speak- compensatory and punitive damages to the Brown and Goldman families. What is with me in long words today? What was the first one that I couldn't pronounce? Irreconcilable differences. Irreconcilable difference. I think that's how you say it. And then compensatory, compensatory damages, compensatory. That's how it's, I feel like I'm saying it wrong. Whatever. Um, apparently I can't speak big words. Emily, no big words. Emily, no, no big words. Anyways, <laughs> but get this. Apparently, as of 2022, OJ has only paid the Goldmans $132,000 out of the approximately $20 million plus that he owes them. <gasps> Isn't that nuts? And on top of that, like, like what? Because he he owes them over, I believe, the breakdown because it wasn't even. That $33.5 million wasn't just like split in half between um, Ron's family and Nicole's family because they both filed for different things. Um, I think he only owed like eight of that $33.5 to Nicole's family and the rest of it was going to Ron's family. So that would have been like, what, $25 million? that he owed the Goldmans and he's only paid 132,000 out of approximately 25 million. Insane. Um, and here's another little fun fact. Exactly 13 years to the day after OJ was acquitted for the murder of Nicole and Ron on October 3rd, 2008, he was sentenced to 33 years in prison with a minimum of nine years served before becoming eligible for parole for an armed robbery that he committed in Las Vegas, Nevada. He was found guilty on all 12 counts that he was charged for. Now I'm going to read off all 12 counts he was charged for and found guilty of. Count one, conspiracy to commit a crime. Count two, conspiracy to commit kidnapping. Count three, conspiracy to commit robbery. Count four, burglary while in possession of a deadly weapon. Count five, first-degree kidnapping with use of a deadly weapon. Uh, count six, again, first-degree kidnapping with use of a deadly weapon. Count seven, robbery with use of a deadly weapon. Count eight, robbery with use of a deadly weapon. Count nine, assault with a deadly weapon. Count ten, again, assault with a deadly weapon. Count eleven, coercion with a deadly weapon. And again, count twelve, coercion with a deadly weapon. A lot of those are repeated. Um, because they were for two different people. So he committed these things against two different people. Um, Bruce Fromong and Alfred Beardsley. Those were the two men that he targeted for this attack. So 
those were the two men that were involved in this armed robbery and attempted kidnapping. Um, so a lot of those charges were doubled because there was one charge for each person. Um, but he was found guilty on all 12 of those counts. Um, unfortunately though, he was paroled on October 1st, 2017, making it so that he only served the nine years in prison that he needed to before being paroled and not a second longer. Um, OJ now spends his life outside the confines of prison, doing all of what he loves, including golfing, while living off of his $25,000 a month NFL pension. His current net worth is $6 million, and his annual income is over $400,000 a year. And you can't pay the Goldmans back for killing their son? Okay, buddy. Yeah, I really have strong feelings about this. I didn't know about this case at all. I knew about the televised pursuit in the Bronco, and I knew about this hysteria with the gloves and how, oh, they didn't fit. <gasps> it was like a Cinderella story, but in court for a murder trial. Oh my God, the shoe doesn't fit. It's not her. <gasps> Where's my princess? Oh, the gloves don't fit. Where's my killer? Well, guess what? He was right in front of you the whole time, and he was probably flexing his hands wrong. Dummies. God. So pissed about that. That's so ridiculous. He obviously killed them. His DNA was all over the crime scene. He, like, come on. His DNA was all over the crime scene. Literally, Ron, and that's the thing, too. How? Okay, and I'm going to get heated about the jury for a second, because I don't give a shit if you don't understand dna evidence the oh uh, i don't care if you don't understand it it doesn't take some forensic scientist to understand how did ron goldman's blood end up in oj's car he didn't he had never met ron goldman he had no connection to ron goldman how did a man who he had no connection with how did Ron Goldman's blood end up in his car? That's all it would have taken for me. Seriously? You don't need to understand DNA evidence, forensic science, to understand that shit doesn't happen unless he killed him. Okay? He was at the crime scene during the murders. He got Ron's blood on him, and that's how his blood got in OJ's car. How else is there to explain? There's no other... Oh, and I did my own little timeline of events here that I'm going to read to you because I wanted to make the timeline of the night make sense to the best of the ability based on when, because I wanted to see if um, when OJ showed up for his limousine ride to the airport matched up with the timeline of the murders. I wanted to see if he even had enough time to kill them and get back to the house to get in the limousine at the time that the like that the driver said he was there. So, mm. all right, so here's and I researched like how far away all these buildings were from each other, how long it would have taken people to get certain places, like whatever. Okay. So, let's start back at 9:33 p.m. on June 12th, which was when Ron Goldman checked out of work or he clocked out of work at the Mezzaluna Trattoria. And then remember, he sat for about 15 minutes chatting with the bartender, probably planning their night out because that's who he was going to hang out with after he dropped 
Nicole's mother's glasses off. So they chatted till about 9.50 p.m. Ron's apartment was only a five-minute walk from Mezzaluna. So from 9.50 to approximately 9.55, Ron was walking home and he arrived home around 9.55. Okay. Now he was getting out of his work clothes, maybe combing his hair, doing whatever. Just getting out of his work clothes, putting casuals on, maybe running a comb through his hair, brushing his teeth. I don't really know. Doing whatever to get ready. But you know, men, they can be ready in like five, 10 minutes. Okay. So we'll say. Um, so Ron was home getting ready, maybe from about 9.55 to like 10.10, okay? And now it's an 18-minute walk to Nicole's condo from Ron's apartment. So that would put Ron at the condo at about 10.30, okay? So, and based on the theory that police had, OJ was already there committing the attack when Ron walked up on it happening. Um, so he was probably just getting done with Nicole um, when Ron came into the scene. So let's say he was, OJ was there killing Nicole from about 10, 25-ish, 10, because then Ron would have got there around 10.30 towards the end of it. So OJ was there from around probably 10.25 to like 10:40. Now, um if you remember, the limousine driver said he pulled up to the house at around 10:25 and the all lights were off, nobody was home, which would make sense because at 10:25, OJ was waiting in the bushes for his time, for his moment to pounce, was plotting it, was plotting his attack on Nicole. So so OJ was not home. That's why the lights were off. He was at Nicole's house um, waiting for his time to attack. Sorry, my mom's calling me, so I just got a little jumbled because <laughs> my phone ringing scared me. Okay, where was I? Yes. So the limousine driver stated he arrived at OJ's house at about 1025. And he drove around for like 15 minutes, finding which entrance would be the best to fit the limousine. And it wasn't until 10.40 that he rang the buzzer. And still at 10.40, nobody was answering and all lights were still off. And it wasn't until a few minutes later, so maybe we'll say 10.45-ish, that the shadowy figure that was the same size as OJ walked into the front door and turned the lights on, indicating that whoever lives there wasn't there a minute ago. They weren't home. Then they got home and turned the lights on. So this would match up with the timeline because if OJ killed Ron and Nicole from around 1025 to 1035, it's only a six-minute drive from where from Nicole's condo to OJ's house. So it would have only taken him six minutes to get from where he killed Nicole and Ron back to his house. Okay? So that would put him back at his house around 1040, 
10.45, which is when the driver of the limousine said that the figure walked into the house and turned the lights on. Okay? So all of that matches up. That entire timeline matches up. And then he went upstairs, frantically changed his clothes, packed all of it into that knapsack that he wouldn't let anyone else touch, and that he didn't check in to the airport. I mean, it it all makes sense. And, I mean, there was motive. They had a volatile relationship. Um... I mean, when they got divorced, she obviously got, like, money from him. He had to pay so much in child support. She was taking money from him. He hated her. He physically abused her. They did reconcile at one point after the marriage, but who's to say that who's to say that, that reconciliation lasted? Who's to say that something else didn't happen? And it, it got ugly again. You know, so it's pretty clear cut that OJ killed them, that OJ is guilty of killing Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown. Um, and it really pisses me off that the jury didn't see that. Really pisses me off, actually. So before I lose my head, um, let's just conclude with OJ's a douche. And he should have rot in prison for the rest of his life for those murders. Um, and he needs to pay back the Goldman family what he fucking owes them. Okay? Moving on. Um, ours, well, actually not moving on because I need to ask you a question. What do you think? As always, I'm always going to ask you that. What do you think about who killed Ron Goldman and Nicole Brown? Do you think OJ makes sense? Um, you know, let me know. I'll ask a question below, and you can answer me if you feel feel like you want to. I would appreciate it because I want to know that I'm not going crazy being upset over that and thinking that it would have been a, a slam dunk for the prosecutors if the jury had just paid attention. Um, okay. Moving on to our segment for the end of this episode. Actually, wait. Wait a minute. Speaking of my mom, um, before I move on, I just wanted to share with you. Remember last week I did what my last meal would be? Um, she texted me after she listened to that and shared with me what her last meal would be. So here's my mother's last meal, okay? Green pepper and onion pan pizza from Pizza Hut breadsticks with the sauce from Olive Garden along with the rigatoni with the marinara sauce from Olive Garden. We are very similar people. I also had rigatoni from Olive Garden. Wait, did I? I don't remember, but I know I had Olive Garden breadsticks on my list. Um, so yeah, a slay mom. Love your last meal. Love it for you. Okay. But just wanted to share that with you, that that was her last meal. Um, shout out. Love you, mom. So now let's actually get into what I wanted to talk to you about. Um, It is the case of Ethan Crumley and the November 2021 Oxford High School shooting in Michigan. So something happened just this past week. It was on February 6th. Um, That's something the newest update to this case happened. 
And I want to talk about that with you because I feel like I never talk about relevant events. Well, I did with Gypsy Rose. Um, but other than that, that's what I want to try and make the last segment is like current events that are happening in the true crime community. So um, let's talk about Ethan Crumley. So on November 30th, 2021, um, he brought a nine millimeter semi-automatic handgun to school and he killed four students. He injured seven, including a teacher, at the Oxford High School in Michigan. Um, authorities arrested him and charged Ethan as an adult for 24 crimes, including murder and terrorism. Ethan pleaded guilty to the charges in October of 2022. And on December 8th of 2023, so very recently, um, about, what, two months ago now, Ethan was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole plus 24 years. Um, his victims were Madison Baldwin. She was 17. Hannah St. Juliana was 14. Justin Schilling was 17. And Tate Meyer was 16. Um, and I, I actually remember seeing something go around about Tate Meyer um, after the shooting. And I didn't remember until I saw his name and it refreshed my memory um, that he was actually the one who died trying to stop Ethan. I believe he charged at him to try and knock the gun out of his hand, but he ended up shooting Tate and unfortunately killing him. Um, so Tate died a hero. Uh, and I do just want to like say their name, say their name because they deserve justice and they deserve to be remembered and their lives were ended way too soon. The school shooting thing is an epidemic in the U.S. and it needs to be stopped. And I think that this next part that I'm about to talk about is a huge start in putting an end, trying to put an end to school shootings. Um, and it's crazy. Like, I know the school shootings are like almost, almost exclusively an American problem. I always see things everywhere that are like, you know, everywhere in Europe, like other places around the globe. It's like the United States is unique in a bad way and that school shootings are like exclusively an American tragedy and it's it needs to be stopped. And there's so many reasons that it's happening in America and not everywhere else. But we <laughs> I don't really know if we have time to get into all that jazz. Um, but let's talk about uh, Ethan's parents. So Jennifer and James Crumley were charged as well as Ethan, um, but his parents were charged with four counts of involuntary manslaughter for failing to secure the handgun that Ethan used in the shooting. Um, his parents did play a significant role in this particular shooting. Um, they were aware of alarming behavior, um, and they were aware of this behavior and they still purchased him a handgun now ethan was 15 i don't remember if i mentioned that ethan was 15 and his parents purchased him a handgun he couldn't even legally carry that handgun for another three years but his parents still bought it for him anyways despite his irrational alarming depressive behavior um, and it 
they bought it for him four days before the shooting. Um, now, the day before the shooting, Ethan was caught in school on his phone, and he was Googling ammunition on his phone. And the school brought him into the office. They called his mother and left a voicemail about the incident. She never responded to the school, but she texted Ethan privately about the matter. And she said, LOL, I'm not mad at you. You have to learn how to not get caught. Excuse me, Jennifer? Jennifer, are you hearing yourself, sweetie? Your son, you just bought him a handgun. And don't even tell me, don't even tell me that you can't recognize when your child is displaying this kind of irrational behavior at home. Don't even try and tell me that. Because if you were any kind of good parent, like, ugh, and I know this is going to come out all wrong. (laughs) This is going to come out all wrong. But I'm not even going to go there because I feel like there's not a good way to say it without being judgmental. Obviously, there are circumstances where your child's going through something and you don't recognize it. Obviously, there are circumstances. There have been circumstances like that. I know depression is a thing that's hard to detect sometimes. So I'm not saying that. But I'm saying that kids who are at the breaking point where they shoot up their school and kill their peers in cold blood there are usually telling signs. There's warning signs. And even if you hadn't, um, even if you hadn't heard anything, noticed anything prior in your child, the fact that you just bought him a handgun and he's in school Googling ammunition, eh, little sus, I think, okay? And she just decides, yeah, you just gotta learn how to not get caught doing those kind of things. Instead of parenting him, and explaining to him why that's not okay and that he needs to be careful with that kind of thing. Yeah, I'm not mad. Just learn how to not get caught. Okay, Jennifer. Good mom. Mom of the year award. Um, And this is the one that really sets alarm bells off. And I don't understand how his parents didn't take this more seriously. Ethan's teacher found a violent drawing on his desk that depicted a gun, a bullet, and a person shot twice on the floor and on the paper were the words the thoughts won't stop help me and my and blood everywhere and my life is useless the world is dead that drawing was found on his desk the day of the shooting before the shooting occurred and it was in the morning and ethan was again called to the office this is the second day in a row now that he's been called to the office for something related to gun violence and they called his parents in this time they didn't just leave a voicemail they called his parents in and his parents went to the school and they told um they recommended that ethan go home and that they need to seek out the help of a healthcare professional within 48 hours or the school was going to call cps on the parents child protective services Um, the parents, while they were at the school, neglected to tell the school that they had recently bought Ethan a handgun. And his parents also resisted the idea of him going home. They, like, refused to take him home after that incident. And then guess what? He was returned to class. And then at 1250, he committed the shooting. So his parents 
kept him in school. Knowing about the drawing, knowing about the Googling of the ammunition the day before, knowing that they had just bought him a handgun, knowing that they had been taking him to the shooting range to teach him how to use the handgun, all of those things put together didn't paint a picture in their heads of what was about to happen. So they refused to take him home. They made him stay in school. And then shortly after that, he killed four people, four innocent students that had their whole lives ahead of them. He killed him. And his parents refused to take him home. And then he went on to kill those kids. Oh, my God. Um, And then seven minutes after the first news report about the shooting was on the TV, Ethan's mom texted him, Ethan, don't do it. Now, at this point, I think they knew that it was Ethan um, based on what had been going on. But guess what? It had already happened. So you can't undo it now. Um, and I think what she texted him when she said, don't do it, I think she was probably referring to him killing himself instead of getting caught. Because we know that's kind of a trend with school shooters. They will often turn the gun on themselves in the end. Um, so that was probably what the text was referring to because obviously the shooting had already happened. So she wouldn't be texting him to say, Ethan, don't do the shooting. He already did it. Or, I mean, maybe she, because it was at his high school. I think she kind of put two and two together um, because it was around the same time that the the dad noticed that the handgun was missing. So I think they probably put two and two together at home that it was Ethan. So I think when she said, Ethan, don't do it, she was probably referring to Ethan, please don't kill yourself. You know, like, we'll get through this. Don't kill yourself. Um, So this is why I wanted to talk about it, though, is that on February 6th, so last week, um, Jennifer's trial was completed. And she was found guilty on four counts of involuntary manslaughter for the failing to secure the handgun. Um, her sentencing doesn't take place until April 9th, but she's facing up to 60 years. So let's hope she gets all 60. Um, James uh, James Crumbly, his trial is set to start on March 5th. Um, and he will be facing the same charges. Four counts of involuntary manslaughter. Um for failing to secure the handgun. So he'll be facing the same charges. Uh, different jury, though. It's clean slate. I think it's a different judge, too, even. Completely separate trials. Clean slate. Um, not going to be related at all in any way to Jennifer's trial, other than the fact that they're being charged for the same thing. Um, so we'll see what James's jury comes up with. Um, but... I do have to say that I think that this was the right call in this case. I do know there's been school shootings where it's just kind of kids are good at hiding their emotions. Kids, teenagers are good at hiding their emotions and it's not always on the parents. It's not. But in this particular case, given the events leading up to the shooting, uh, the fact that they refused to take him home when clearly something was going on. Um, they refused to help him and they gave him access to a pistol, to a handgun. And then that resulted in the deaths of four innocent teenagers who had their entire lives ahead of them. So in this case, yes, I do think the parents are not as not equally responsible because they didn't pull the trigger, but they are responsible in a way. They are the reason this was allowed to happen. They allowed this to happen willingly 
Um, so I do think in this case, this was the right call. And now that this case has kind of set precedent for, it's kind of like a precedented event for this kind of thing. I don't really think it's not common for parents to be like charged and put away for their children's crimes. It's not common, like especially in school shootings. Um, so I think this, now that we've started this, it might snowball effect to other school shooting cases that happen in the future. And let's pray that it's not going to be a lot, even though I think we all deep down know that we have a long road ahead of us and this is going to become a common phenomenon. It already is. Um, and we have a long road ahead of us to solve this. But as a nation, we just need to do better. We need to be better. We need to be better about mental health and recognizing like signs. We need to be better about like how easy it is for kids to have access to guns. Um, it's eh, there's so many different aspects to the issue, but I think the first place to start is really focusing on mental health in America. Because I think that's almost exclusively an American issue, too. Like, our suicide rate is insane. There's a mental health crisis in America. We Because we don't have good health care. Therapy is expensive. Insurance sucks. So there are a lot of problems that are exclusively American uh, that have to do with school shootings. Mental health is the start. We need to focus on mental health. And make sure everybody has access to the care that they need. Um, That's the biggest thing, I think. That'd be the first place to start. But anyway, again, what are your thoughts on his parents being convicted? Or we don't know about his dad yet, but we know his mom's going to prison. For how long, we don't know, but she's serving time for it. I think it's justified. I think that was the right move. Uh, Let me know what you think about that. Um, Again, my MacBook sounds like it's about to explode. And if I lose all this audio, I'm going to lose my marbles. So I'm going to end the episode there. I hope you enjoyed. Let me know your thoughts down below. I will ask a question of you. Okay. Um, Again, sorry for the hiatus, but it feels really good to be back. We will be back on schedule next week. I will see you next Monday for the next episode. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye.